Happy Mother's Day, and thank you for listening to this message from Northwest Hills Community Church in Corvallis, Oregon. You can learn more about our church at nwhills.com. Today, Pastor Josh Carstensen is continuing a series on 1 John, where he addresses two relationship problems in society. First, we gather into tribes at the exclusion of others, and second, we isolate ourselves and feel lonely. John offers a remedy. We should love one another as we love ourselves, and not only in word or talk, but also in deed and truth. John finishes this section by showing us how Jesus loved us. Who do you need to love today? After the message, you're invited to answer some application questions, which you can find on our website right next to the worship service video. Now, here's today's message. Nancy is going to read for us this morning. Weighty scripture this morning, Josh. It's good. Thank you for that. I don't do this well, so I'll just read it. Oh, it's all right. First John chapter 3, verse 11 through 18. Mm-hmm. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, that this world hates you. We know that we have passed our we passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death, and whoever and everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Nancy. You can grab a seat. As you're grabbing a seat, I I have a question for you, and this is a question whether you have been in church a long time and are very familiar with the Bible, or maybe you're newer to the Bible and you'll just have to guess, and that's okay. Uh, When you think about the Bible, uh, answer in your own head, what was the first problem in the Bible? It starts early. You see the first problem, I think, probably by the second page. I want you to think about what the first problem was. We're going to start on the first page, though, and I'm going to read a lot of scripture today. And we're going to start with seeing a lot of things that were really good. So let's go Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to try to figure out where this problem was. So page number one of your Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was a light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters. And there were under the expanse from the waters that were above that expanse. And it was so. And God called that expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so, and God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. 
And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so, and the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to its own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be signs for the seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Hang in there. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. I hope you're picking up a theme so far. God's creating and everything that he's creating is really, really good. I don't know about you, but it's, it had been a little while since I had read chapter 1, and, and you read it and, and you recognize that, man, there is a lot of beautiful poetry going on here. There's, there's a lot of, this is ancient Hebrew poetry, and, and Moses, who is the author of this, who was given these words by God, is trying to explain one thing, and that's primarily that God was the cause behind all this. He's not primarily concerned with how, he's not primarily concerned with, you know, what are all the details in the creation story? And these are details that we get really excited about sometimes, and I think often unnecessarily so. But God is saying that everything he made was really, really good. But then something happens, and we see in the next page that there is a problem in this creation. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 7. And my mic feels a little hot. I'm getting some echo. I don't know if that's me. Uh, 7 verse 2. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Down to 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep him. And then in 18, we're going to see our first problem. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. There it is. There's our first problem in all of Scripture. God creates. Everything is good. Everything is beautiful. Everything is right. God's creating all the days, and he's creating the earth and the the heavens and the seas and all the creatures, and he's doing all the things that he's doing, and he's saying it's all really, really good. And then he says he creates man, and man's alone, and that's not good. It's not good that man's alone, and then God proceeds to make Eve. He makes a woman. Happy Mother's Day. And then it's really good. And this is not a Mother's Day sermon, but it's there. So we see that we have this great need to belong to one another. This great need that we 
ought not to be alone. And we see this in the very nature and character of God himself, right? If, if you know who God is, God exists in what we call the Trinity, in one uh, nature, in three persons, in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is a triune uh, community nature of God who exists in relationship with himself. And when he creates, he says, we need to have relationship with other people. And if you are alone, that is not a good thing. And God creates... But then in the very next page, probably about page 3 in chapter 3, there's a break in this creation. And ultimately, this break in creation causes a break in the solution to the first problem that we have. The solution being a community, a unity, a getting to know one another, a loving of one another. And then in chapter 3, we see a breaking of this as evil enters the world, as sin enters the world. And every part of relationship is fractured, primarily in two different ways. The relationship between us and God is now fractured after Genesis 3. And so that relationship is absolutely broken. But then we also see the relationship between uh, people and each other is broken. And we see this primarily in two different ways. We see this breaking of relationship in two different ways. Uh, One of the ways that we see them is now we belong to people. We we gather in like-minded groups. But often as we belong to one another, we belong at the exclusion of other types of people or other groups of people. Right? We, We like to kind of break off into different tribes. We like to break off into people who think like us, who look like us, who act like us. And, and oftentimes this comes with the, the um, aftermath of hating people who don't act like us or look like us or think like us. That's one of the ways that we break community with one another. And the other way that we break community with one another is that we simply don't belong to one another and we are isolated from one another. And my goodness, this is part of our reality today. Not only are we isolated, but we are lonely and we are experiencing the problems of what it means to be a lonely, isolated people. But let's look at this first one because John has something to say about a a giant remedy to this. But what does it mean that we are a people who often kind of uh, associate ourselves with like-minded tribes? Right, you think about the last century that we just came out of, the 20th century. And as most of you know, it was the bloodiest century in the history of mankind. And primarily, most of the atrocities that came out of the 20th century have one thing in common, what we call tribalism. What we call this idea that we are going to gather with like-minded people and we are going to say, we are good and you are bad. That we are right and you are wrong. And ultimately, it created all kinds of problems, right? Starting in our own country, right? We've got a a history here that you look back in the 20th century and you can see uh, some of the things that are talked about today, even rightfully and good And for good reason, right? The history of racism, of hate and segregation in our country, right? You look at some of the other major problems historically around the world in the 20th century, whether it was Hitler's Holocaust, right? Whether it was Stalin's gulags, the rape of Nanking, the Armenian genocide, the killing fields of Cambodia, or Rwandan genocide, we're really good at saying we are going to be in a group of people and we are going to exclude another group of people. And it has caused all kinds of war, all kinds of division, all kinds of pain, right? We're really good at saying our group is right and your group is wrong. We are good, you are bad, right? We are white, you are black. We are Aryan, you are Jewish. We are Japanese, you are Chinese, right? We are Hutu, you are Tutsi. We are Republican, you are Democrat. My way of thinking about the world is correct and yours isn't. And this causes massive problems amongst relationships, right? We like to group with one another, which is a good thing. 
But unfortunately, because of Genesis 3, when we group with one another, whether it's in a church setting, whether it's in a club or a social setting or a political gathering, when we group together with one another, often it is at the exclusion or the castigation of other groups of people. And John's going to say when we do this, it causes hate and division and anger and pain. He gives us a remedy, though. John says this in chapter 3, verse 13, he, well, he talks about this. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Well, that seems to be a problem because we are quite a murderous group of people as a whole, especially when he's going to define what it means to be a murderer. And that's just hating someone who is different from you. So what do we do with this? This is a major problem. The other problem, like I said earlier, is not only are we really good at being in groups of people, but we're really good at being isolated and being lonely, right? There's a famous book that came out a little while ago by Robert Putnam. He's a Harvard sociologist, and he talked about, uh, in his book, Bowling Alone, he talked about the the need for our interconnectedness with one another and our need uh, for relationship and connection. I got a couple quotes from that book. He he says, social connectedness is one of the most powerful determinants of our well-being, He says, suicide is a sociological predictable consequence of the degree to which one is integrated into society. In other words, uh, if you are more connected to other people, you are less likely to feel isolated and to try to end your life. Listen to this next quote. I thought this was fascinating. He says, if you belong to no groups, but decide to join one, you cut your risk of dying over the next year in half. That's fascinating. If you don't belong to a group of people of any sort of group and you decide, I'm going to join some sort of group of people this next year, your risk of dying is cut in half that year. He also wrote about declining social capital, about um, our need to connect with one another and how these trends have been plummeting over the last 25 years. He says the attendance of club meetings has dropped 58%. The regular family dinners have dropped 43% and having friends over has dropped 35%. And here's the fascinating thing. This book was written about 20 years ago in 2001, right? And that's before all the fun of our last 20 years of whatever social media, whatever phone you have, whatever pandemic, we're really good at being isolated. We're really good at that. Last month, there was a Um, a a study that came out by Barna looking at pastors. And this is something I've been fascinated with over the pandemic and kind of following different trends of different Christian leaders and so and such. And uh, in March of 2022, so just a couple months ago, uh, the survey was done and said 42% of pastors have thought seriously about quitting ministry this year. And that was surprisingly up from 29% in 2001, 42%. And they gave three reasons, the top three reasons why pastors are wanting to quit. Stress, loneliness and isolation, and current political division. And obviously pastors are not alone. Right, but this is kind of the world that I run in and different people that I talk to and different conversations that I have with people. The conversations that I hear over and over and over again is I feel alone. I don't feel like I have people that I can talk with. I don't, have, I don't feel like I have people who really know me for me. I have a hard time connecting with people who have a different worldview than me because I don't know how to understand them and they don't know how to understand me. This is a conversation that I have regularly with parents, with grandparents, with students, with siblings. Everyone right now is struggling with this. And again, it's an assault that goes back to the first problem that we see in Genesis chapter 2, that God made man, and it's not good 
that they be alone. So how do we deal with these problems? Right? Um, Nancy read for us John's remedy to this. And so we're going to start in chapter 3, verse 11. And we're going to see what John has to say about these problems of either being isolated in groups of people, which cause division, which can cause division, or the opposite of being isolated. We see this in chapter 3, verse 11. Something can be done. He says, For this is a message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. I'm going to read that again. This is a message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So when he's talking about from the beginning, he's talking about a word that was written about 1,500 years before him. And it's the same problem. It's the same problem in Genesis 2. It's the same problem in John, 1 John chapter 3. And it's the same problem that we face today. And he says it loud and clear. He says, you've heard it from the beginning that we should love one another. And what is this, the beginning? When he says the beginning, I want to go to that beginning because um, God speaks to Moses in a very clear, profound way when he's creating a new culture and a new country. And he's saying, this is how I want you to treat one another. If you've got a Bible, go to Leviticus chapter 19. Starting in verse 9, again, when John says, you have heard this from the beginning, this is what he's referring to. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. He says, everything that you have is not yours. Every paycheck you get, every interest accruing, whatever, it's not yours. Leave some for others because I am God and I love the outcasts. I love the marginalized. I love the hurting. He goes on in verse 11. He says, you shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. He says, be honest with one another because I'm honest. Verse 13, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with, with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall not take what is not yours, he's saying. It's easy for us to live in a, in a society where we want to grab everything that we can, where we want to take all for today and forget about those who do not have. And he says, no, you, you need to be honest with one another. He continues on in verse 15. He says, you shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take revenge or vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. He gives this really long explanation and he summarizes it at the very end and he says, You shall love your neighbor. As you love yourself. And these are words that were given 3,500 years ago. And they're given to Moses to this group of people. And again, John reiterates this 
some 2,000 years ago to a church that was struggling with division within the church. Right, we've talked about this over the last seven, eight weeks as this church was being separated because people were thinking, well, my way of living is right and you don't understand who God is. I do and I've got the right remedy and I've got the best way to live. And John's saying, time out, everyone. For 1,500 years, God told us how we're to treat one another. He says, as you've heard from the beginning, you need to love one another and you need to love them as you love yourself. I think this is fascinating, this whole idea of why is it so important that John says love one another as we love ourselves? And why is it so important in the, in the way that we see each other in different tribes and different group thinks? Why is this so important? Because when you think about yourself, we never think of ourselves as only belonging to a part of a certain group. Right? We know that we're individuals. Right? Think about how you view yourself. As you view yourself, you don't think of yourself as like, you know, I think about myself and, and I'm not just a husband. I'm not just a, a white cisgendered male. I'm not just an American. I'm not just a Christian. I'm not just a dad. I am unique, right? I am a snowflake. It's true. Like I am, I have my own history. Like Disney got, gets some things, right? Like there's no one else like me, right? Even my bald brothers out here who are kind of my age and my height, like we're very different. Everything about us. We are unique. We don't see, I don't see myself as just belonging to that group. But what happens when we see other people is very often we see other people and we see them as just belonging to this group, yeah. right? You see someone who's out asking for money at the corner of Winco and how easy is it to go, oh, that person is blank. Like that person is a peddler or that person is a panhandler or that person is a beggar or how easy is it when you see someone's social media post to go, oh, that person is fill in the blank, to lob them into a group. How easy is it when you see someone's bumper sticker to say, oh, that person is, whatever it is, that person's an anti-feminist, that person's a feminist, that person's a Republican, that person's this, that person's that. To love your neighbor as yourself is to see people as individuals, right? It's to see this person not as like, oh, this is who you are, but man, this person has a history, this person has dreams. This person has longings. This person is a unique individual who needs to be loved as I ought to be loved. And so John says the way that we love people well is by not seeing them as just a part of a group, but to see them as we see ourselves an individual. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. So who do you need to love today? Right? Loving people is not easy, let me tell you. I was confessing with a friend up here just a minute ago. I got some people that I'm struggling with loving right now. I got a neighbor who the last thing I want to do right now is love them. Right? We've got siblings. We've got parents. Maybe it's Mother's Day and you're like, you know what? I'm struggling to love my mom. Right? Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a boss. We've all got different reasons why it's really hard to love people, but John makes it very clear. As you've heard from the beginning, for 3,500 years, God says, love people as you love yourself. He continues on, and he says, love one another in two different ways. He says, one, don't be like Cain. And then he says, don't be surprised when you're like Abel. Let's pick it up in verse 12. He says, we should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? 
because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Great. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. You think about Cain. And we're, we're going to look at this story I, in a number of weeks, I think Gary's actually going to be preaching on uh, Cain and Abel, or rather Abel, uh, when we get to uh, uh, Hebrews 11 and when we go through this series. But we look at this whole idea of what it means to be like Cain and what was Cain's problem? Uh, if you know the story of Cain and Abel, you go back to early Genesis and Adam and Eve have two sons and, and God invites them to make a sacrifice before him and Cain and Abel both bring an offering and uh, Abel's offering is is one from the heart, and God accepts it, and it's pleasing, and Cain's offering ultimately isn't, and God rejects it. And what's Cain's response? He's mad at his brother, which is really, really weird, right? Because Cain has a problem, and because he has a problem, he wants to be mad at someone else. Well, what's that about, right? That's human nature, right? How often when we have problems do we want to find someone else to blame for our own problems, And John says, don't be like Cain. Like, how easy is it to say, like, oh, man, it's my boss's fault that my job's not going very well? Right? How easy is it to say, like, ah, it's the government's fault that we're all failing and struggling, right? It's my spouse's fault that I don't feel secure or I don't feel loved, right? You know, it's it's my church's fault that I'm not getting, you know, fed or I'm not getting connected. It's my professor's fault that I'm struggling in this class, right? This is the problem of Cain. Like, I I didn't do well, so I'm going to be mad at my brother who did well. And John warns us, he says, some of you will have the heart of Cain. Do not be like Cain. He says very clearly, do not be like Cain. And here's why. If you do not love, he says, you will abide in death. You will not know who God is. And again, he's speaking to this church that's got a lot of division. You got to put yourself in this place where people are not loving each other like they ought to. They're mad at one another. And he's saying, if you're mad at your brother who belongs to your church, he says, you do not know who God is. You do not know his love. Do not be mad at them. Look in the mirror. But then he also says, sometimes you'll be like Abel. And this is hard, right? Abel did the right thing and he gets murdered. Like, that's rough. That's a rough reality. He's doing the right thing, and his brother gets mad at him, and his brother kills him. Like, great, we got the first two kids, and they didn't even make it out alive. Right? So, so what's he trying to say here? He's saying that by nature of doing what's right, by nature of doing what's good, people are not going to like you. Right? By nature of following Jesus, by nature of having a truth claim where you say, I believe that I know who God is, that is an exclusive claim, and people don't like exclusivity, particularly if they don't share the same view as you do. Right? We see this all the time today, like with people getting upset with Christians, right? My goodness, like in the last couple of weeks, the last week in particular, if you don't agree with my political stance on something or my moral stance on something, Christians, I am not going to like you and I am not going to be happy with you. Right? He says it right here. Don't be surprised. For 2,000 years, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. He ends in this section with how, how we are to love one another. And I'll try to wrap it up with this. He says in verse 16, he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. For if anyone who has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 
I love this because John ends his argument with Jesus. Right? He says, how do you love? He says, you got to look at Jesus. How did Jesus love? And we're going to look at two different ways at how Jesus loved. The first way, you think about Jesus' life and you think about how he was involved and invested in people, ultimately causing uh, or going back to that first problem in Genesis 2 and bringing healing to that. Jesus was connected to a lot of different people, but how was he connected? Right? How did Jesus have a relationship with people? He had a relationship with a broad number of people, but he also like, narrowed it down pretty quickly. You think about the fact that Jesus had at one point uh, 72 disciples, and then he has 12 followers, and then out of his 12, he has three, and then out of his three, he has one, right? John is his best friend. Jesus cannot be friends with everyone. He cannot have relationship with everyone. So the example that we learn from Jesus in what it looks like to love people well is that there are people who we ought to invest in, but we ought to pick wisely and carefully how can we and when and where, how can we invest in a small number of people? Because in a church of our size, let's be honest, we cannot all be friends, right? We can be acquaintances and we can care for one another on a broad level, but you got to have some of your own people. So who are your people? Jesus had his people, Sometimes I think it's unfair. You think about all the 12 disciples. How much do we know about nine of the disciples? Not many, not much. Like if you read through scripture, we, I guess Judas, so eight of them, we really don't hear much about eight of the disciples, but we hear a whole lot about three. And we hear from one of them in particular, he's writing right now, his closest of all friends. So think about your life and think about who are the people that you are investing in at that close level. Who are, who are your three? Who is your one? Who are your twelve? We got our family, we got our friends. To love people takes intentionality. And then we'll wrap it up with this. The second way that he loved the world is that Jesus did something about his love and it was incredibly costly. Right, ultimately we think about what Jesus did and yes, he came to the world and he made friends and he loved people well, but ultimately he gave his life. He didn't just stay in heaven and say, man, I love the world and give some good words. He didn't just say, man, it would be so great if they could figure out who I am. Man, it'd be so great if they would stop all the evil that they're doing and would return to me and love me like they ought to. No, he took his life and he gave it and it was incredibly costly. Think about the world that we live in. We live in a world that's obsessed with convenience. Right? Think about, we, we live in a world that's obsessed with ease. Right? How, how, how much effort we put into trying to take away things that are hard in life. Right? You think about whether it's Amazon Prime and I need to order something now. Or I was thinking about yesterday, I was, I was uh, buying something and, and there's the new, you know, with your, with your card, you just touch it. Right? You just touch it because sticking in or swiping it is too much work. So now we can just touch it. Right? Or if you're really cool, you can just do Apple Pay. And I don't even think you have to touch it with Apple Pay. Right? We think about kind of the history of ideas and things that get created to make our life more convenient and easy, whether it's the microwave or the dishwasher. We're all about ease and convenience, but it turns out to love people well takes the opposite of ease and convenience. It literally takes effort and inconvenience. Like that's what love is. It's inconvenient. You know, inconvenient it was for Jesus to come to earth. Right? It's, it's convenient to send a text to your mom today. No shame if that's what you're going to do, but I would encourage you, maybe pick up the phone and call her. Maybe even better, go see her if you can, right? Jesus saw us in our separated state from God, and he saw us when we couldn't really do much to fix that, 
And he came and he gave everything at the most amount of inconvenience possible to say, I see you, I love you, I'm going to give everything for you. And ultimately, that's what love does. It costs everything. So as we wrap it up on Mother's Day, I want us to think about how are we giving everything? Like John said, as you have heard from the beginning, love one another as I have loved you. A costly, costly love. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you that you love us well. That your love is not one out of convenience. It is not one out of ease but that it was one that did something. Lord, we think about our lives and we think about the different relationships that we have and we think about the different groups of people that we naturally find ourselves attracted to or navigating towards. And we think about when we do that, how very often the consequence of that is that we can find ourselves pitting ourselves against other people. Or Lord, some of us have the the natural aversion towards people and we want to be isolated. We want to be alone, and that's a problem as well. And John's going to make it very clear. The way to live is to love one another. And Lord, this is a phrase that just gets brought up again and again and again in the study. And as we are looking at this, I want us to perpetually ask ourselves, how can I love one another, and how can I love them like I love myself? God, how can we see people the way you see them? And then not only do we see people the way that you see them, but how can we act the way that you acted? How can we love the way that you loved? Jesus, we love you and thank you for your word, giving us something to build our lives on. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's teaching from Northwest Hills Community Church. We hope you find ways to apply the gospel to your life. And be sure to check out our website, nwhills.com where you'll find ways to engage, including resources like our application questions. Thanks again for listening.